Okay, good morning. Again, happy Mother's Day. Uh, welcome to this scattered gathering. Uh, I hope whatever celebrations are going on today are, are awesome and fun. And uh, again, uh, praying as well for those of you who for today is not an awesome day. I know this is so conflicting for many, and we're praying for you as well, for those of you who are uh, struggling in this day as well. Um, we're going to come to a time now in God's words. We're going to look at a passage here from the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible there, a Bible app, whatever, if you could go to our passage today, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, verses 7 through 16. We're actually going to start the reading, though, back in verse 1, because, again, we're continuing on in part 2 of a message that we began last Sunday, and so I just want to give us that context, and then we'll hit our passage in verse 7. So when you found that, let's read that together. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 here. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And now here's our passage today, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together from every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll uh, dig into this passage together. Spirit of God, we are asking now that you would take this word that we believe you inspired men to write thousands of years ago, making it a living word, that you would take this word now and apply it powerfully to our hearts, powerfully as, as individuals, powerfully as, as your church scattered all over the place right now. Would you cause this word to powerfully work among us? I pray, Spirit of God, open every heart, every ear, every mind to receive what you want to accomplish, and then accomplish it, please, not by my ability to speak, but by your great power that is at work within us. And I, was, I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. All right, it's like this, stance, balance, uh, you got your, your grip, head down, aim, uh, then hand speed, plane, club face, contact, follow through. Uh, I remember as a child watching golf on TV and thinking that the, the game required nothing more than just setting up a little ball on a tee and hitting it in the direction of the hole. 
Years later, now having developed a really more of a love-hate relationship with the game, I now understand that a golf shot actually requires every single one of those elements I just mentioned and more, all working simultaneously together at once in order to hit the ball properly. Fail, miss at even one of those elements, and you're going to spend the next 10 minutes just trying to find your ball, let alone hitting your next shot. Now, fortunately, there are... uh, trainers. There are golf pros whose whole job it is to help you work with and develop each one of those individual elements and then bring it all together so that they can work all together seamlessly as one, increasing both your love for as well as your effectiveness in the game of golf. So we are continuing on this morning in our series through the book of Ephesians. And as I said, we are now moving into part two of a message that I preached last Sunday on what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called as God's family. If you didn't hear that first message, I'd encourage you later today or this week, maybe go back and listen to that message because it's really foundational for everything we're going to look at here. And, and, and I'm going to be building off what I said last week. So Go back and listen to that message if you can, but just very briefly so that we can at least move forward this morning and maybe even a little bit of review, even for those of you who did hear this message. Um, What we saw last week in last week's message, moving into chapter 4, is that Paul is now shifting. He's shifting his focus about, he's been teaching about the fulfillment of God's plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in him through the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross, to now teaching about the implications of that plan for all who've been reconciled and made members of this household of God by grace through faith. And what Paul, we saw, was writing in these first 16 verses of chapter 4, we saw at least four requirements or guidelines of what God says life in his reconciled, redeemed family is supposed to look like. Last week, we looked at the first two requirements of unifying virtues and unifying, the unifying principle. Uh, unifying virtues, uh, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And we said that the Spirit uh, enables us and, and, and also motivates us to, to live those things out. And then, of course, the unifying principle, that there is one source of, uh, of hope by which we've all been reconciled and redeemed. And there are no other streams by which that we can be united or that can satisfy our soul's deepest thirst, that by which our, our soul's thirst can be quenched. Okay, so there it is. That, that's, that's last week's message In in very brief summary, what we're going to look at now today in verses 7 through 16, the second half, is the last two requirements that Paul lists here for us of what it means, what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Namely, today, unifying diversity and then unifying maturity. Unifying diversity and maturity, which actually is going to focus us now more in on the individual members of this one united family of God. As John Stott notes here in in his commentary, he says, verse 6 speaks of God as the father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Verse 7, however, begins, but grace was given to each of us. Thus Paul turns from all of us to each of us, and so from the unity of the church to the diversity of within the church, which actually, thinking of these last two requirements of unifying diversity and maturity of the, in the life of the church, has direct relevance to everything I just mentioned as we began this morning about a golf swing, the elements needed to perform a golf swing. Just, you can think of it this way. Just as each one of those different elements 
are all needed in, in, to, be, to be developed and grown, and they all need to be working together cohesively as one unit in order for your love for and effectiveness in the game of golf to be enhanced. So God has gifted each member of his body, the church, differently. And as we are grown and, and as, as we mature in our use of those individual gifts and, and we learn how to bring those diverse gifts all together to serve cohesively as one family, the church body is built and grown up in love, as Paul talks about there in verse 16, and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that Paul wrote about in verse 3 is also maintained. That's why this is so important. That's why we... we, we need to not just hear this, but actually live it out. So if you've still got your Bible there with you, if you've closed it, would you open it up again to our passage here? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Follow along with me now as Paul unpacks these last two requirements of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Okay, so let's look first of all at unifying diversity. Unifying diversity, which I know for a lot of us almost sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, like just to try to wrap our minds around the idea that something that's different about each one of us being something that also unites us. Well, but the point is, it's not so much that the differences themselves are the things that unite us, but rather it's the source of those differences as well as the purpose of those differences that are the things that Paul says unites us. And, and let, let's just tell you what, let's just look again at what Paul writes in verse 7 through 12 here, and hopefully you'll see what I mean. Okay, so Paul writes this again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So again, Paul, Paul is, is zeroing in now. He's zeroing in from, from, from a big picture view, looking at this whole body as one, now to the different individuals that, that make up that whole one family. But let me do this. Let me just do this for clarity's sake. Let me, say, let me tell you what I think Paul's point is here overall through, through all of these verses, and then we'll just go back and just look at each of the elements for a minute and talk about what they mean a bit more. So, so overall, this is what I think Paul is saying. Ready? God has given spiritual gifts, gifts of grace to each and every member of his family, and, and we are to use those gifts in service of others as well as to build up the church. Paul says God has also gifted the church with certain spiritual leaders whose whole job it is to help everyone use their spiritual gifts as they were intended. And finally, he grounds all of God's gifting in Christ's victory over the powers of sin and death in his resurrection. That's, that's what I see going on in all those verses. That's what I think his overall message is as it relates to this unifying diversity. So let's go back now and just quickly look at a couple of these things in a bit more detail. First of all, Verse 7, Paul says in verse 7 that we've all been given a gift of grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, which at first glance when you read that and, and knowing what we know back in chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, that Paul says we are saved by grace could lead us to, it could almost sound like Paul's saying there are different levels of salvation. 
That some are going to receive more saving grace than others. But no, uh, given the immediate context that we're looking at here, as well as what Paul says about his own individual spiritual gifts, his own gifting of grace that he talks about in chapter 3. He says, the, the grace of God given to me to preach to the Gentiles. It's not talking about necessarily, it's not referring to saving grace, but serving grace. It's different things. Paul's not talking here about saving grace, but serving grace. And, and, and the way that you hear about this serving grace most often identified is this language of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And, and the point I want to emphasize here in particular quickly is that according to Paul, these spiritual gifts are given to each one of us. To each one of us. So that means if you're a part of God's family, you have one. You do. Second, we'll get back to that. It, it, you notice in verse 11, Paul lists five leadership positions within the church body. Some would say there's actually only four if what Paul says there about shepherds and teachers is actually intended to be just one office of shepherd-teacher. But, but the fact is, so he's listed these, these spiritual leaders, and, and the language that Paul uses here of God giving these leaders to the church suggests that he sees these leaders as gifts of grace to the church as well. And if you look at the first two roles in particular, apostles and prophets, you'll note these are the same two foundational roles that Paul listed back in chapter 2.20, as well as uh, chapter 3, verse 5, about the foundational roles upon which the whole church is built. And then those second two roles, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, as Clinton Arnold notes this in his commentary, are the principal ministers responsible for the proclamation and application of the word of God in people's lives. But, okay, here's the thing. Lest, lest you think that these, those who serve in these roles are some kind of special class of Christian, and as we can so often default to, even still today, we do, we, uh, thinking that the, these special Christians, that they're the ones through whom ministry is primarily done, we see Paul goes on to state immediately in verse 12 that their chief purpose in leadership is not to minister themselves alone, but to do what? To equip the saints. To equip God's reconciled people for the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. That is, listen, the primary role of leaders in the church is to help every Christian use and continue to develop their own individual spiritual gifts, both to build up the church more and more as well as to do the work of the ministry. What ministry? Well, the ministry of reconciliation that, that every follower of Jesus has been called to. As N.T. Wright notes in his commentary, he says, Make no mistake, verse 12 indicates clearly that the point of God calling people to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers is so that every Christian can serve in the way that they are called to do for the building up of the whole body. Finally, that, that whole description there in verses 8 through 10, where Paul is actually quoting from Psalm 68, which is a psalm that at least in part describes the, the victory of God for his people over Egypt, it forms the basis upon which Paul says God gifts all of us in this way now that Christ has defeated the powers of sin and death for all time. And enemies far more powerful than a kingdom like Egypt. And then what he's saying is kind of like, like a, a victorious king in battle in that day. God now apportions the spoils taken from the enemies that he's defeated and he gives them out. He, he gives them as gifts to his people. Now, there's a lot there, right? Like I... For myself alone, I read that, I see at least like five sermons worth of material there. But given the fact that we want to get through this series in Ephesians in, in one year and not three, uh, what I want to do is just focus on one point in particular here. 
And it's this concept that Paul introduces here about us being one body, which we saw back in verse 6. We are, we are one body, but we're one body that is made up of individuals with a whole different diversity of different giftings. And as I said earlier, and I hope you see now, it's not the diversity of giftings themselves that's unifying, but the fact that they're all given by the same God and that their purpose to serve others and to build up the church is also the same. That, that, that's what makes them a unifying thing. They come from the same source and they have the same purpose. Now, this is not a message about spiritual gifts in particular. I'd love to do a whole sermon series one of these years on, on spiritual gifts. And by God's grace, maybe... We'll get to that. But I think there's still a few key truths that we can still draw from what Paul says about these diverse gifts that I think will be a great encouragement to to you and to me this morning. So let's look at that. First of all, we've already said this, actually. First thing to say about spiritual gifts is you have one. You have one. If you've been saved by grace through faith, made a part of this new society of God's family, you have been specially gifted by God. I know I've heard people say occasionally from time to time, well, I don't think I have one. Uh, I know a lot of people do. I, I, don't, I can't see any way that God has specially gifted me. But listen, the point, God's word is clear here. This gifting of grace, he says, has been given to each one of us. That's the first thing. Second, the purpose of giving you that gift was not strictly for your own enjoyment. You could be like, man, this is awesome. It's not for your own enjoyment alone, but to enable you to be God's ministers as well as to build up the church in the way that he designed you specifically and intentionally to do in a way that nobody else could. The Bible always, always speaks of spiritual gifts as being primarily used in service of others. And it's one of the reasons, actually, that we place such a high value. We talk about it so often here at Dunbar Heights, this value of, of serving, both within the church as well as in the neighborhoods, dorms, apartment buildings, wherever it is that God has placed you around the city. Why? Well, because Paul's point here is that as we are faithful to use our gifts as they were intended, the church body is built up. And we are unified more and more and more. Finally, every gift is needed. Every one of these gifts is needed. It would be far too easy to look at some of the gifts in the church that perhaps are, are given more prominence, given more stage time or whatever, and assume that, okay, because I don't have that gift, my gift is unimportant. My gift is not useful. But no, listen, the, the church itself, look how he describes it as being a body. A whole unit that's built all together as one. A body is, is one complete thing. It's, it's connected. It's got the same heart and lungs, same circulatory system, same nervous system. Every part is needed in a body in order for it to exist as a body, as well as it for to, to function as it was originally intended. So your gift is needed as a part of the body in order for the body to actually be a body. So you, you have a spiritual gift from God as a member of his family to be used as one of his ministers as well as to build up the church. And, and if that's the case, if that's true, we can trust what God's word said here. The, the question that each one of us ought to be examining in light of that is, okay, am I using that gift as it, as it was intended? Or am I just kind of burying it and, or sitting on it? Or am I just kind of hoarding it to myself and not making use of it? Am I using this gift as it was intended? And I know I can, I can hear the pushback already to a question like that for some of you is you cry out, but I don't know what my gift is. I mean, that's, wow, that's great for you, Pastor. Great for you, some people in our church. It seems like you have clarity on, on what your gift is. It's being identified for you, but I don't know what it is. I, I can't see how God's gifted me. I, I need more help. I need, a, I need to take a test. I need to take a class. I need something to understand how God's gifted me so I can figure this out. To which I would say, yeah, 
Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, a test, sometimes what's called a spiritual gifts inventory, that can certainly be a very helpful guide in determining how it is that God has uniquely gifted you. But here's the thing. Here's what I'd say. Sometimes, sometimes what can be even more helpful than a test or a class is just to start serving others. Just start serving others inside and outside the church, wherever opportunity arises, and see if, listen, here's the, here's the point, see if the way you serve is accomplishing what Paul said the purpose of these gifts was designed for, namely building up the church and producing gospel fruit. If it is, I think you can determine with an equal degree of certainty from any test you might take that that is how God's uniquely gifted you. If you're serving in some way and it's accomplishing what the purpose of the gifts is, that's probably the way you were gifted. It's like a, a story that Tim Keller shares about some of his early days in the ministry when he first started pastoring in a small town in Virginia. When he started as a young pastor there, he says he was uh, sat down by a number of the uh, older, more established members of the church who want to tell him how things were. This is how it goes. Great. But he said at least three different people mentioned to him the, these low-income housing projects that were located very close to the church building. But each one, each person highlighting a different need in, in, how it was, in relation to how it was that the church could, could serve them. So one person said, uh, listen, n- none of these people come to our church, but man, they need Jesus. They need to know Jesus. The problem with our church is that we need a greater heart for, for the lost, a greater heart to share the good news. Another person said, the people in those, uh, thing, those housing units, they, they, they have so many needs from childcare to construction to, to healthy food to, to clothing, all these things. The problem with our church is we need a greater heart to serve, a greater heart to carry out acts of mercy. Last one said, there's so many different projects that have been started and not completed in that housing complex. The problem with our church is, is, is there's, that we need someone who can organize volunteers, put them together like they need to be put together in order that, that someone who understands what's involved in order for a project to, to get through from beginning to end. Do you see it? Do you see it? As he sat there listening to to them describe the problem with their church, each one of their individual giftings of evangelism, active mercy, leadership, were just just bubbling to the surface and becoming obvious. But listen, my point is this. Their gifts came to the surface. They, They were made apparent not because Tim led a class on spiritual gifts, but because they saw a need and they applied whatever came naturally to them in order to meet it, and their gifting became obvious. And so if you're struggling to identify how it is that God has uniquely gifted you, one question that that you could ask that that, that might help you to to identify what that is, is to ask yourself this, okay, what are the needs? What do I see around me spiritually, uh, physically, emotionally, financially, whatever it is that you see around you right now in your neighborhoods, in your school, in your apartment complex, within our church? What are the needs? And then, once you've identified, let's say, one or two key needs, seek to live out the purpose of the spiritual gifts in relation to those needs. Being a minister of the gospel, building up the church, and, and in doing that, in living out the purpose of the gifts, what they're supposed to do as it relates to those needs, you may just discover exactly how it is that God has uniquely gifted you in the process. 
Okay, so that's unifying diversity, uh, and one of the key results of living that out is God's family. Again, you see there at the beginning of verse 13 is we have this ever-increasing unity, and we have this ever-increasing knowledge of Christ being, being more deeply rooted and, and grounded in his love. But as you keep reading through verse 13, you see that Paul builds off that unifying diversity and then transitions into this last requirement of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called Unifying maturity. Unifying maturity. Let's just look again at what Paul says about this requirement, then we'll just talk about it for a minute. Paul writes here, <clears throat> beginning uh, halfway through verse 13, until we attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, why? So that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, right off the bat, don't, don't get thrown off by, by what Paul says there, his statement about our maturity as a church leading us to mature manhood. Okay, all, all he's doing there is simply building off the picture that he gave us back in chapter 2 about one of the results of the reconciling work of Jesus, remember, between Jews and Gentiles. He breaks down the dividing wall, brings them together in order to, he says, create one new man in place of the two. So he's just building off that metaphor of, of one new man created and maturing to mature manhood. I think Paul's chief point as it relates to this unifying maturity, we see right at the beginning of verse 14. Look with me there. So that we may no longer be children. That's his chief point here of what he's talking about here. So that we may no longer be children. And I know that that too is actually a difficult concept for a lot of us to get our minds around, particularly those of us who came to faith once we were already adults. This idea that although we may be physically mature adults, When we first come to faith in Jesus and adopted into his family, spiritually speaking, we're infants. That's actually the word, the Greek word he uses here for children is infants. As Peter, for instance, says of those newly reconciled into the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says to them, like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you may grow up into your salvation. And when you look at what Paul lists as some of the consequences of remaining children, of of not growing up in their salvation, the rest of verse 14, look at the the things he lists there. I think you can see very clearly why it is that he thinks this is so important, why this is such a big deal that, that we not remain children. Because here's the thing, being an infant is beautiful, right? It's a beautiful, joyful thing, right? I mean, being an infant, it means you're alive, you've been born, you've been born into a family, this is a growing family that you're now a part of, so being an infant is is awesome. But listen, no parent believes that their baby is going to stay an infant forever, nor that they should even stay that way, despite what you hear parents say sometimes about like, oh, I wish this stage could last forever. I know what they mean, but no, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, Because, and, and I think this is Paul's primary point here as it relates to the church, as an infant, as an infant, you are incredibly vulnerable And you're entirely dependent on others to survive. An infant in a family, think about that. Entirely vulnerable and dependent on on the whole family, the others in the family, in order for them to survive. So just think about this for a minute. Think about what what an infant is like. 
They, they can't discern between good food and poison, uh, something that's, that's dangerous or not dangerous. They just everything like, oh, give it to me, put it in my mouth, whatever it is. They can't discern between those two things. Even as they get older and become toddlers, they need to actually intentionally be taught because they're so incredibly self-focused and self-centered. They have to be trained not to hit, bite, not to rip the toy that they want out of the hands of another kid. They also have incredibly short intention spans. Have you ever been with a toddler? They get, they're loving something for a minute, and then five seconds later, they're like, okay, done with that. Give me something new. But just take that now. Take that image of an infant and transfer it into the life of a brand new Christian, of a newly born Christian. Spiritual infants also have no ability to discern between true and false teaching, between helpful and, and actually poisonous teaching. They just take it all in. Oh, it's great. this is good, right? They're just taking it all in. They're, they're entirely focused so often on themselves and their own needs, and thus they're constantly offended, constantly unable to take criticism from others. It's always the, always the victim role, and there also can be fickle and undisciplined when it comes to the real work involved in spiritual growth. This is what spiritual infants are like. But listen, here's the point. Paul's point is that to one degree or another, this is what all of us are like in the church. You notice he says there that, that we may no longer be children. So he's even including himself in this spiritual infancy of, of needing to mature and grow up. We're all like this to one degree or another. But listen, what he is also saying is that if we're going to maintain unity in the church and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, we cannot stay that way. We cannot stay that way. Paul just, just destroys here this whole idea of personal autonomy within the church, this idea that it's okay for me to maintain spiritual, just hang out in spiritual immaturity as long as I'm not hurting or bothering anyone else. Paul's point here is actually you're hurting everyone. You're hurting everyone in the body by refusing to get off the bottle, spiritually speaking, and grow up in your salvation. Your immaturity affects the rest of the body. It keeps us from being able to mature and grow and operate as one unit. It's not just you that's affected. It's the entire body that's affected. I love the way Eugene Peterson, he, he paraphrases verse 14 in his modern, kind of modern-day paraphrase of the New Testament. States verse 14 this way, no prolonged infancies among us, please, will not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth, and then tell it in love like Christ in everything. Which leads us directly into Paul's helpful solution as to how it is we deal with this problem of spiritual immaturity, so that we can be united as God's family and continue to operate as a body as he intended. You see it there again in verse 15 and 16. He says, rather, instead of maintaining living in spiritual immaturity, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that's all of us, when each part is working properly, when it is growing up, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how do we leave behind spiritual immaturity and grow up into this unifying maturity as God's family? Well, we speak the truth in love to one another. That's how we speak the truth in love to one another, which sounds simple until you try to live it out. <laughs> because listen, basically every single one of us here, we all drive off into the ditch on either side of this for the most part. Some of us 
Some of us are, are, are loving, really kind-hearted people by temperament, but that leads us to withhold the truth from people, even truth maybe they really need to hear because we don't want to hurt their feelings. So we're just going to be loving towards them. I don't want to hurt their feelings, which, which really in the end is, is probably more to do with we don't want to deal with the consequences of confronting someone because they might get mad at us. They might not like that. That's often really what the motivation is. But then others, others of us are more direct and to the point in our temperament. We love to confront people, but we communicate truth without love. There's no love for that person. And, and we, what we end up doing is making people just shut down or immediately become defensive, leaving them not hearing the truth that maybe they really, really need to hear. The truth they really need to hear remains unknown. As Tim Keller says so well, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. But the way that we mature and grow up in our salvation, Paul tells us here, is to seek to speak, act, and live in both of these ways, truthful and loving at the same time, and being a united family, allowing others to speak and act and, and, and live like this towards us. It's both, back and forth, doing both of that on both sides. It means spiritual maturity is not only essential to the life of the church, it's also something that can't be accomplished on our own. We need each other in order to be able to accomplish this maturity. You need someone who can be able to tell you, hey, you got this big spider on your back. You got the thing hanging off, whatever. Like, like other people need your loving truth spoken to them about the immaturity that they can't see, and you need other people to speak that same loving truth to you so that together we can grow up in our salvation and leave behind spiritual immaturity. Paul says when you do this, when you seek to grow as a church body in this unifying maturity, that's what happens. We see it in verse 15 and 16. We grow up. When we speak the truth and love to one another like this, we grow up in every way into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like as God's reconciled, redeemed family to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called and to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is what it looks like. We, we, we seek to live according to the unifying virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering with one another, motivated and empowered by Christ's spirit dwelling within us more and more. We remember the unifying principle that there is no other stream with which we can unite, that can unite us to God, which can unite us to one another, and which can satisfy our soul's deepest thirst. We all, listen, every one of us, all make use of our individual diversity of giftings so that every part of the body can work together as one. And we seek to grow up. We seek to mature in our faith by speaking true things to one another in loving ways, understanding that our individual maturity or immaturity impacts directly the overall health and maturity of the body as a whole. I think altogether it's exactly like the picture we began with this morning of a golf swing. 
the need for every individual part to be growing and, and developing individually. We need to be working on ourselves as, as God enables us, as he points and convicts and empowers us. But, the, but only so that each individual part can come together and work more effectively as one complete whole to produce an ever-increasing health and effectiveness in accomplishing the task, whatever task it is in front of us. I know it's not easy. It's not at all easy. We're all going to need to continually work together as well as individually, as Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But as Paul powerfully concluded in his doxology from chapter 3, as we strive to do this, as we strive to live these requirements out according to the power of God who can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine that is at work within us we will increasingly bring more and more glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus and we'll do that throughout all generations forever and ever may it be so among us Dunbar Heights both as individuals as well as as a church Amen.